Yeah, you can go. All right. Well, we have seen the fearsome threat from Gog. Gog of the land of Magog with his, you know, huge army with Meshach and Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, Put, Gomer, Bethogarma. They're coming up just like a storm, just like a cloud. They're overwhelming to this uh, city, this unwalled village living securely with no gates and bars. It's just devastating. And, uh, you know, Gog is trying to take spoil. Gog is, is seeking to plunder this, you know, vulnerable village. And uh, so this looks like the end of God's people. It looks like curtains for them. How could an unwalled village ever withstand the force of Gog and the allied armies? That's what we saw last week. Anything you want to say before we... Plow forward. 14 to 16. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly, and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Okay, so this kind of summarizes the idea that Gog is going to opportunistically pounce on this unsuspecting victim and with all of his great assembly and his mighty army like this cloud coming against God's land. But the result of this is not going to be anything like God intended. Because God's purpose manages to overrule human motives. Oh, did I? Uh, what did I do with that? Oh, no. This is bad. Okay. Come on, that's the same one. I hear it is. No, I just I just hit that, I think. What? That's a recording. So Anita's not. Yes, Anita just wrote Gary, you sent it to voice and you rejected it. You're not used to to going back. Go hang it up. Or did you hang that up? Well, yeah, I just, I just, I, I wasn't trying to answer it. I just accidentally hit a button when I was pulling it out of my back. Yeah. Oh, he's sick. Who's sick? We have Ryan. Oh, we have his Bible. Oh, right. Alan. Alan. We have Alan. We have Ryan. So God, God's purpose overrides man's motive. And what do we see happening here? What, what is going to be the result of God coming like the cloud against Israel? God will be sanctified. Yeah. What God thought was going to be a slam dunk <coughs> victory for him, God is going to turn into an opportunity for him to be glorified, for him to be exalted before their eyes. God loves these kinds of odds because it gives greater glory to him greater uh, a victory that's just even more impressive. So that's what we're seeing here, is that God's going to turn this into, into something in which he will be exalted. All right?
comments and questions through 16. Seventeen to twenty-three. Thus says the Lord God, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? It will come about on that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the, birds of the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into judgment with him, and I shall rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I shall magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Okay. You see some pretty powerful things happening. But in 17, he asked the question, are you the one that the former prophets spoke about that I would bring you against them? Now that's a, it's kind of a tough question to answer uh, because I'm not sure whether he intends for it to be answered no or yes. Maybe he's saying no. You're not the one God had commissioned to bring judgment against his people. The foe out of the north, for example, that Jeremiah keeps talking about. Maybe that's the way he intends for that to be answered. I'd suggest that as a possibility. Because actually what's going to happen when God comes, uh, brings Gog, is that he's not going to give the victory to Gog. He's not going to give success to Gog. Rather, God was going to be angry. And what's going to happen in 19 and 20? whole lot of shaking. Yeah. An earthquake. <laughs> and everything will shake in God's presence and fall to the ground. And then 21, what's there going to be? Death. Death by of each other. Kind of mutual strife and destruction. And then in 22 and 23, what's there going to be? Yeah, plagues, all sorts of uh, various things God was going to rain down upon them. And in all this, verse 23, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. So all of this bringing God down will have the result of showcasing God's uh, power, God's holiness and, and and just who God really is. He's going he's gonna to show that. God is exalted not just by his blessings. God is exalted and he reveals himself in his judgments in his punishments in the way he brings the nations down. That's what he's going to do with Gog and that's going to be God's way of showing everybody who he really was.
Is there another possibility for that question? Yeah, it could maybe means to answer yes, you are the one I predicted. I'm going to bring you down. Well, okay. <laughs> I prefer the negative answer myself. Um, well, it depends. I mean, you know, he could say that, well, God's predicted, you know, coming of somebody who's going to, he's going to bring down or something like that. I'm not sure if that's really the case all that much. I don't know. I really wish we knew which things he had in mind. You know, what statements he was referring to in those uh, former prophets. It makes it just a little bit difficult to know for sure what he's referring to. Because <coughs> they don't mention, like, God specifically, do they? No, certainly not. But he's asking the question, you know, are, are you the one? And I'm saying probably no, but I, there's, there are those who answer yes. Try to relate that to some sort of a, you know, uprising. But no, I don't think Gog, I think really Gog and Magog like this are, are mentioned only in Revelation. Other comments and questions on chapter 38? Okay, say that all again. What was the question and what was your answer? The question is, it should the question of verse 17 be answered positively or negatively? The question of verse 17. The question is, are you the one of whom I spoke in former days to my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in the days for many years that I would bring you against them? <laughs> are you the one the former prophets were talking about? And I'm saying, I think he means to say, no, you're not. You're not the one who's going to be successful in bringing my people down. Instead, you're going to be brought down. comments and questions on 38? So you think the question is the same no matter what? The, the, the question is the answer. What now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You're right. <laughs> you completely lost so, me. So the question in verse 17 is the same. The, the, what the, the dilemma is, what's the answer? The question yeah. is, are you the people? Or yeah. Are the, yeah, exactly. No, it's the question of whether is the answer yes or is the answer yes. Yes, correct. That's what I said. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but you said the question was the answer. <laughs> she meant five, That's just not what she meant. <laughs> well, so, but the, the question could be... She couldn't print the scorecards, but it's not a big deal. Well, no, I guess it's, it, the question could be, are you the one that I prophesied I'm going to bring you against them and smash you, or are you the one I prophesied that I'm going to bring them against you, you against them, and not smash you? Yeah, I think that's the idea. So it could be either... <laughs> I don't remember reading that, but okay. But, yeah. So, he obviously has to be asking it for their sake, because, like, he knows the answer. Well, I would so say so. the point is that we should know what he's saying, but we have to <laughs> Well, yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's frustrating. Oh, well, join Bible study. <laughs> this isn't the first time we haven't known for sure the answer to a question. <laughs> no. But we can just be dogmatic. The answer is no. The other way just doesn't make much sense. But no. 
And then you can put up the question if you need to. Yeah. And in any event, it doesn't matter a whole lot, because the answer is, you're the one who's going to come, and I'm going to get mad at you, and it's going to be a serious smackdown. You're right. That is the uh, bottom line. So I have to admit, it's kind of funny, because I'm like, I was reading that and going, ooh, ooh, we're building up to a revelation finish. Big armies, big armies. Okay, it's done. <laughs> Yeah, that's about right. She's got the, the pattern done. Mm-hmm. All right, anything else on 38? 39, <laughs> 1 to 8. And you, son of man, prophesy against God and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around, drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. I will strike your bow from your left hand, and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird, and beast of the field. You will fall in the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. And I will send fire upon Magog, and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Okay. So God is against uh, Gog, and what was he going to do with him? Turn him around, drive him around take him here and there and and then yeah (laughs) you see this ominous menacing Gog the leader of the world's best equipped armies and as he fights against the Lord the Lord knocks his weapons (laughs) from his hands in verse 3 and he drops dead verse 4 so much for all this threatening powerful ominous army you know, God is going to bring him down, and, uh, well, who's going to enjoy God's demise? Then birds and beasts again. Yes. You know when it's good for the birds and the beasts, it's not so good for the human beings. <laughs> That's, uh, they're going to have a feast. You know, you can imagine the vultures and the buzzards and all those sorts of, uh, you know, birds just, you know, circling around, uh, licking their chops, so to speak. That's what God's going to do. God has spoken, he's going to burn him up, and he's going to show who he is. His holy name will not be profaned anymore. You remember back in chapter 36, that God's name had been profaned when the nation of Israel went into captivity because it made it look like either God just didn't care about him, or that he wasn't God enough to be able to protect him from the Babylonians. And so when God brings God down... It's a way of, of vindicating his name and, and causing his name not to be profaned anymore among the nations. They can't say now that God's not God enough to take care of some fearsome enemy. Comments and questions? I think we've probably talked about this before. But is this a real place or nation? I think he's sort of... Uh, Meaning it to be unreal. This is, this is. I mean, you know, there's a Magog in the list of nations in Genesis 10, 10 and all that, but 
But I think the point more is we're just trying to envision a far-off mythical army. You know, this is from Lower Mongolia or somewhere. You know, somewhere that sounds like it's just practically a you know desolate place, and the people from there must be you know hungry warriors, kind of a thing. I think we're just trying to build up an image using some place names that we really don't exactly know. They wouldn't have exactly known where they were, but they were way off yonder. And what is the point of like what is this representing? Just that when the enemies of God's people try to destroy them. You know, here they are. God's people have been destroyed by Babylon and then God brings them back. Well, what's going to happen when another Babylon comes along? Or worse, Gog and his his allied armies come. Then what are they going to do? And the answer is, oh, God will protect them. I don't care if they're in unwalled villages and they're being, being met by this blitzkrieg force from Gog and his allies, don't worry. God will bring them down. There is not a force that's going to bring down God's people as long as they're faithful to him. So they would be running scared or intimidated because they've been brought down and they sort of thought God was on their side. So this is God reassuring them, if you're really on my side, then no, nothing will happen to you. Yes, exactly. I understand. Yeah. It's a very comforting thing. And, and, and the more powerful and numerous God's armies are, the more comfort and security this gives you. God can even handle this. You know, he can handle any lesser threat. All right, other comments? How about 9 and 10? Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears, and for seven years they will make fires of them. And they will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest, for they will make fires with the weapons, and they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize and plunder the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord. Well, this is a very... Uh beneficial result of God's fall. What do they do? Firewood. They get firewood. Well, where do they come up with the firewood? What trees do they have to come to cut down for that? They go out and they take all the weapons that God's armies left behind. And there's quite a list of them in verse 9. And what do they do with those weapons? They're firewood. They don't have to cut trees down. They'll just burn, you know, some, uh, you know, shields and bows and clubs and whatever. Whatever they found there, they use for fuel. And for how long does this uh, uh, abandoned army equipment last them? Seven years. Can you imagine an army big enough that it supplies all of the wood for cooking and heating and whatever for all of Israel for seven years? That was a, a humongous army. That's part of the point of this. And, and we know from chapter 38 that Gog was trying to plunder God's people, but you know what happens? They get plundered. They get their weapons used for, uh, for heat. It's kind of interesting that 
in verse uh, 6, God was sending fire upon Magog. But uh, these flammable materials seem to be about the only thing that hadn't been hurt by that fire. And that's because God wants them to use them to be able to, you know, make fires with for seven years. Comments and questions? Okay, here's one of my funny comments. So you can just imagine your know, life in an Israelite home. Honey, will you put another club on the fire? Yeah. <laughs> I think this is a two shield night, honey. It's <laughs> Could be a music. <laughs> put it she visualizes well. Yeah, she does. Yes, that's cool. It gives them something to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm Keeps my brain it, out of trouble. I suppose it was something like that. <coughs> Anything else? I don't think a shield's as good, though. I thought a shield was metal. Well, they can be shield covered with um, a skin that's soaked in water or stretched or tanned or something. Or it could be the frame of the shield. They are made of metal too. Would they have been made of metal back then? The buckler is a round sword. The small round sword. The shield. The buckle under your arm. Those are usually made out of wood. In fact, in the Romans, their big shields, like Wittman's arrows, were made out of wood. Things like that. Oh, sorry, then you can catch the arrow and then you can shoot it back. <laughs> 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 I like this part. <laughs> 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 so like, you know, Superman catching a bullet or somebody catching a bullet in the jeep from some comic strip. I think that would be the parallel. <laughs> Alright, anything else you want to say about this? <laughs> I kind of see in this, like, uh, I think it's kind of interesting that through all this trouble that's going to come on them, like, I just imagine some big, dark army coming against them, and, you know, they're in such a dire position, and they're, it looks so uh, dangerous, and they look like they don't have any hope or whatever, and yet it's turned around, and they even get a benefit out of it. And that kind of reminded me like, of James 1, where he talks about, Blessed is the man who perseveres, because when you haven't stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And that's, I guess you can kind of compare that to that. You know, even when we've got these dark trials or stuff that we suffer with, I mean, there's always a good outcome in the end if we persevere. We trust in the Lord. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, things aren't how they appear. We look at the immediate, superficial view, and we throw up our hands in despair. I mean, it looked like, you know, there was no hope when Gog and his armies came, and yet this turned out to be a beneficial thing. They got the net to cut down firewood for seven years. <laughs> Any other comments? 11 through 16. On that day I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will block off those who had passed by. So they will bury Gog there with all his horde, and they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. 
Even all the people of the land will bury them, and it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who are passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. As those who pass through the land pass by, and anyone sees a man's bone, then he will set up a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. And even the name of the city will be Hamanah, so they will cleanse the land. So, what do you have happening here? The burial of Gog. Yes, the burial of Gog. <laughs> and, um, well, um, it's a good thing for, you know, <coughs> decaying bodies to be buried. We can see the value of that. <laughs> and uh, this, these are the bodies of who? Yeah, the armies that have fallen. And uh, so, what does it take to get Gog buried? Everybody working on burial detail for seven whole months to get all these guys buried, which tells you again, this was an enormous, mammoth, humongous, unbelievably large army. Seven months, everybody burying, and they even, you know, get a, a group or two of like professional morticians to go through and tag any remaining remains, and another group to, to go through and, and bury those. And so this is, um, you know, God putting down once and for all the threat that Gog has, has given. Comments? Questions? Significance to seven years and seven months? Of course. Seven complete, usual kind yes, of significance? Yes, I think so. That's the appropriate time. It's the, the appropriate prophets. number. So. Yes. It's a scriptural number. Yes. It's those three and ten and twelve and forty. But none are as scriptural as seven. <laughs> really? I think there's more sevens than anything else. Yeah, I have a related question. <laughs> um, so he's describing a real valley, isn't he? Or is he? Yeah, and he's describing a valley. So, like, would they, I don't know, would they be able to say, that's the valley where we're going to be? I guess so. But, like, this didn't literally happen, did it? No, but he's seeing it as if it literally happened. The idea is, whoever comes against God's people, they're going to be defeated badly. Not that the people listen to what you said anyway, so they probably didn't mean to. Could be. But we're listening. Is there any significance to the Israelites <clears throat> to the Israelites bearing them and they're just not being like, I don't know, eaten up or whatever? Well, yeah. Next section they are eaten up. <laughs> but <laughs> I think mostly that it just gives a way of emphasizing the huge number of the enemy. You know, if it takes this long for everybody working together to bury him, we've got a, a humongous army. I think it's more just to be able to get that point across. Well, and, and they couldn't. They couldn't just leave them there. 
because then the land would be unclean from the blood and, and all of that. You've got to do something with the dead body. Mm -hmm. And even though the birds, you know, they get their share, it's still, you need to bury the bones or whatever's left. Mm -hmm. Other comments, of course. <coughs> All right, 17 to 20. 20. Oh, speak. The valley of those who pass by east of the sea, up in verse 11. Yes. For some reason, whenever that was read, I was thinking that's a main trade route. <coughs> well, for one thing, we're not sure which sea. Oh, that's true. But I'm, because I'm thinking, isn't there like a... A road there, and then if you're thinking about the Mediterranean Sea, yes, yeah, there's kind of that way of the sea. Uh -huh. a, so you've got this... Big, bar, or whatever it's called, bar. Yeah. The, you've got a big burial ground right next to a commercial road so that everybody who goes past sees it. Mm -hmm. Yes. King Highway was east of the Jordan, and the was the Mari... Way of the sea. Yeah. Mar, Mar something. Mar would mean C, probably. Yeah, something like that. Wasn't that the Viva? Viva Del Mar would be way of C in mine. Yes. So, I have no idea, but it sounded like it could be. It's wrong. Yes. Okay. But this is fictional, anyway. Yeah, it's it's a vision. It's a it's a picture. All right, seventeen to twenty. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God: Speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you, as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted, and drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. You will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. Alright, so what are we seeing here? All the birds and beasts coming together for a big sacrifice. Yes! And a big feast! Now, normally, what gets sacrificed? The birds and the beasts. But in this case, the tables are turned and what gets sacrificed? Yeah, these armies of God get sacrificed and the Lord is inviting special guests to attend this great banquet he's preparing. This great sacrifice for them. And he describes the menu and he signs the invitation. And, you know offers them the opportunity to gorge themselves on the mass of dead bodies of God. On mighty men and all the men of war. Yeah, I bet that's really good eating. Mind your revelation. Ding, 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 ding. No revelation reminds you of Ezekiel. You either are the feast or you partake of the beast. Yeah, yeah, you're either invited to the marriage feast or you become the main course at the other feast. That is Revelation, don't tell me. Thank you. Yes. I have to look that. Other comments and questions? It looks like they're going to eat their fill and you get the idea there's plenty left. 
Yeah. It looks like they're going to be fat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, have, they have a lot to eat. I was directing that at Alan. Yeah. <laughs> Can you put me a pipe this up too and put this in your transcript? <laughs> <laughs> I don't transcribe it. No. But it's being recorded. Yeah. So, so if anything happens to you, we'll know it happened. <laughs> <laughs> I just got it. It's a fact foul play. Go ahead, sir. Foul is a foul play. The, the fat lambs of Bashan. Yes. That's what I was just. Uh, the, yes. Is there? Is, are there the cows of Bashan? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's the same place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the idea of Bashan. That's the area on the right hand side of like the Jordan River. It was like the Great Plains of Israel. Very great grazing ground for animals. So what were the cows of They were the fat women who were telling their husbands to bring them more to eat and drink. Yeah. Uh, I think so. Never tell a woman that she reminds you of a cow. That would really... <laughs> <laughs> a well-fed cow, mind you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but deers are, you know, that's better. You know. Deers? It's like a gazelle. Or something. That's a little better. Your hair is like a flock of sheep. Yeah. yeah. Now your teeth are like uh, a sheep. Yeah, a bunch of you lambs, and not one of them's missing. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great pickup line. But use with caution. <laughs> but it really does say that your hair is like a flock of goats. Yes. And it was positive. And yeah. It's really it positive. Like I'm not being missing. Wow. He compares her to a lot of strange places in clothes. Towers and walls and. Yeah, and buildings and. I wonder if they were like there were the gazelles somewhere. Yeah, they were. Could be wrong. I'm not sure how in the world we got to the son of Solomon. We went from the bat invasions to, to more uh, dating advice for Megan for our and the cows of Fashion. The cows don't call them dating advice. Very logical. I bet you we piqued his interest to go read Song of Solomon. Yeah. I bet you have. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I don't necessarily recommend you overdose on it at the moment. There's some really good things about it. It's just hard to understand. It's probably basically love poetry between a uh, guy and a girl. Thank you, Gary. Well, wow. Clarification is sometimes necessary in this day and age. Well, uh, yeah. well, and the thing of it is, there are some other interpretations of Song of Solomon have three characters involved, but I think it's probably best to see it. Yeah, I think yeah, three characters is really complicated.
that. Unnecessary. You think it's yeah. too scary. Did you hear the yeah. lecture? You heard the lecture about it. It's pretty strong, buddy. Was there yeah, one this that year? Simple moment. No. Was <laughs> <laughs> John talking about it? Did he hurt? Uh, I don't think I did. Well, was he was talking about it because it was, he was talking about a C-H-I-A-S-M. And you were talking about Gary that? Gary went to Yeah, I went to, they did some of Solomon in the Johnson City Studies, I went to. Yeah, that's what that's I was The SITS conference. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, there may have been. I didn't hear it. I don't know. Okay. Not like Gary. All right. All right. Any uh, any other comments or questions on through verse twenty or on Song of Solomon? <laughs> yeah, no, there's very many. <laughs> Better not. All right. Uh, twenty-one to twenty-nine. And I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile because, for their iniquity, because they acted treacherously against me, and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hands of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness, and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them, and I hid my face from them. Therefore thus says the Lord God, now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I shall be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me, when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations, and then gathered them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Okay, so we see some of the concluding results from God giving the victory to his people and bringing God down. I will set my glory among the nations. The nations will see my judgment that I've executed. So, one purpose is for the nations to see what God can do. This is going to be a, a dramatic display of his power for them, and for the house of Israel, verse 22, to know that I'm the Lord their God from that day onward. They will learn definitively who God really is. And the nations will know, verse 23, what? Which is what? Which is because they transgressed God's commandments. Exactly. And therefore God gave them into the hand of their adversaries. It is clear when God is able to defeat Gog and his armies that God didn't let, allow Israel to be defeated and conquered because he wasn't strong enough. He's strong enough. He deliberately brought the nation of Babylon against Judah because of their wickedness. That's what becomes obvious. You know, it, it's sort of be like, uh, this is a little different, uh, maybe, point. But, uh, oh, you've got uh, a teacher of some elementary school kids. 
let's say it's, you know, big, strong, you know, football coach teacher. And uh, there's one really mouthy elementary school kid that just is constantly annoying everyone. And the teacher watches while he gets his knock, block knocked off. You know, and the teacher thinks, you know, he deserves it. I'm not going to intervene. Now, you might right then think, I bet that teacher's not tough enough to handle this. Except they're elementary school kids, and this guy's really tough. There comes another time when, you know, the kid is repented, and he's doing well, and the toughest guy in the school starts to pick on him. The teacher, you know, deals with that, you know, forcefully. The first time he let the kid get his block knocked off because he deserved it. Because this was a part of the punishment he saw was best. It doesn't mean that, you know, he wasn't uh, tough enough to be able to handle the little elementary elementary school kid who was punching him out. It means that, you know, he didn't choose to act that way because he thought he needed the punishment. When God lets Israel go into captivity, it's not because God can't deal with their enemies. It's because God thought they needed the punishment. And that becomes obvious because God brings them back and blesses them. And when God comes, well, it's just like that. It is never that God got overpowered. We pray. And the answer is no. And what do we think? Yes, I prayed for too much. You know, I guess God really couldn't handle that. No! If God says no, it's because he chose to say no because in his wisdom it was best not to. It's never because, well, you know, God, he just got in over his head on that one and he just couldn't do anything about it. That is never the way that is. So, you see, you know, this result. Um, and now God, well, let me say, do you have questions or comments through 24? Well, now God chooses to bless them again, to restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel in verse 25. Now that's a change. Do you remember earlier in the book, before God had brought them into judgment, God refused to have mercy. He refused to pity them. Back in 5.11, he said, My eye will have no pity, and I will not spare. And again in 7.4, My eye will have no pity on you, and so forth. There have been many times early in the book, God said, I won't have compassion, I won't have mercy, I won't have pity. And now God does. Now God has changed and he's going to bring them back and he's going to bless them and they're going to know who God is because now he's blessing them. And he says, I won't hide my face any longer for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. Now that's pretty significant too. God pouring out his spirit on the house of Israel because what had he poured out previously on the house of Israel? That's exactly right. Like 7, 8. There's many of these. But now I will surely pour out my shortly pour out my wrath on you. Now he's going to pour out his spirit on him. And there is so much in the prophets that talks about the era of blessing as being the era of the spirit that would bring all these blessings, the blessings of justice and peace and salvation and all of that. And and the prophets look forward to the coming of this time that would be blessed by the spirit of God being with his people. And so what we have today in Christ is the fulfillment of that. That God has chosen to allow His Spirit to be with us. 
comments and questions to this point? On 30, 38, 39? Verse 26. Mm -hmm. They shall forget their disgrace. That seems to be like a really big deal. Um, but I'm not entirely sure I know how that works. Well, I think what he's really saying is that they are going to be blessed so much that they'll never even remember the disgrace because it's swallowed up in these great blessings that God gives them. So it's just kind of like it overshadows the disgrace. How does that parallel us today, assuming it does, which it does, because, you know... Well, I think that... The blessings that we have in Christ are overshadow the failures and the frustrations and disappointments of the past. That, that, yeah, we may have had some setbacks, but look at the blessings. They just, they, they, you know, overwhelm us to where the, the disgraces of the past seem like nothing. And this would include, I mean, it, it includes all their treachery which they perpetrated against me. Mm -hmm. So, all of the bad things that they had done, they're not going to be weighed down by that anymore. I agree. Because they've gotten through it in the positive sense. And because they have these great blessings now to occupy their time and attention. There's a balance here. I mean, there's some passages earlier in, Jeremiah, in Ezekiel where, you know, they'll loathe themselves because of what they've done. You know, it takes the godly sorrow and the repentance, but it brings the great joy and blessing that far overshadows all that they've done in the past. Other comments and questions? What I'm going to do, I think, at this point, is just kind of talk a little bit about this next section. I don't think we'll try to go into detail on that, but there's quite a bit to talk about just to try to get ready to study this. This is the challenging section in Ezekiel. You think this has been tough till now. This is really tough. But there are some things that I think will help us a lot if we will remember them for two weeks from now when we uh, start this. Um, I'll show you a few things in these first few verses that, that particularly you might notice that will help us. Um, notice in verse 1 that the hand of the Lord was on him and brought him somewhere. Um, and then in verse 2, this is in the visions of God. God sets him on a high mountain. And, and um, you see... The, the, this kind of this visionary scenario of, of where God's hand and his divisions bring him somewhere. Now, that ought to remind us of some things earlier in Ezekiel. What does that remind you of? Being lifted up by his hair and taken to Jerusalem <laughs> where he got to look at stuff. <laughs> yes! Remember where that was in Ezekiel? In the beginning. Not quite. The king? Not quite. 8 through 11. And that's pretty significant because some of these phrases are used very infrequently, not very frequently in the book. And this is a passage in chapters 8 through 11 
that that uses that same terminology, basically. Even the date formula that he uses in 40 verse 1, he uses over there in chapter 8 and verse, uh, one of those verse 8, eight 1, I guess. Um, but but you've got in, in, in uh, 8.3, catching, stretching out the form of a hand, caught me by the lock of my head, the spirit lifted me up and brought me. It, it's a similar kind of a thing. So I think we're intended to see these two events as having some sort of connection because it's not every chapter that the Spirit lifts him up or that the visions of God occur or whatever. So what happened in 8 through 11? He went to Jerusalem and saw lots of abominations and idolatry and there were people bowing down to the sun and other stuff. And, and I seem to recall there was a a scribe riding on foreheads and big battle axes and much bloodshed. And the presence of God was leaving the temple. Yes. The big The abomination and that and because of these horrible abominations, God he he rode out of the temple. His cherubim chariot carried him to the doorway of the tent of uh, the tabernacle and then on out of the, the temple, on out to the the mountains to the east of Jerusalem and away. God abandoned his people because they had abandoned him. Now, what we're really seeing in a great measure in this section, God's going to come back home. God's going to come back to dwell among his people. And that is really significant. Now, the other passages that use these visions of God and spirit lifting up the prophet and so forth are in the very first vision of Ezekiel as well where he saw the chariot throne of God and so forth in chapter 1 and chapter 3. Um, you've really got those clusters. Uh, you know, the visionary experience in the first three chapters and the visionary experience in 8 through 11 and now another visionary experience in 40 to 48. You know, he was commissioned, and then he sees God leaving, and now he's going to get a great vision that is ultimately going to mean God comes back and he dwells with his people again, and they're blessed with his presence. I think it would not have been good to end Ezekiel without God coming back to be with them. I mean, you know, as far as we know, God's still gone, and they need the Lord and his presence. And... Um, oh, one of the things that we need to uh, think about also in introducing this properly is to think about the function of the temple because a lot of what we're going to read, and it's going to be kind of boring, will be Ezekiel is, is introduced to this temple. And he's got an angelic guide that's going to you know, accompany him as they tour the temple, and they've got, you know, measuring rods and so forth, and they're going to take all sorts of measurements, and he's going to see this whole temple situation. Kind of reminds you of Exodus, or something like that, or First Kings, where either the tabernacle <coughs> blueprint was revealed, and it was constructed, or, or Solomon built the temple. You know, a lot of details about rooms, and this, that, and the other thing. But, but there's a point behind this. Maybe two. First of all, um, what did the temple mean to God's people? So, the, the, the temple being there, being able to see and experience the temple 
is a symbol for God being with his people. This is, you know, this is going to seem tedious, but it's not tedious. It's exciting because, because the temple means God's here with us. And that's, that's a really key point and a, a key thought for us, you know, in all of this. So we're going to, we're going to look at this and instead of getting bogged down in the details, we're going to think about that this means that God is, is present with his people. And he loves his people. He's, he's come back to dwell with them, and to, to enjoy, you know, fellowship with them again. I'm giving kind of an overall view just because I think we probably need that to start this. Do you have some comments and questions? What are you thinking about all this? Is this just chapter 40 or chapter 40 to 48? 48. Okay, so the whole rest of the book is going to be... A vision. Like this. Yes. Okay. yes. It's going to have some parts, we'll see. It's first going to describe the temple thoroughly, and then it's going to describe the worship in the temple, and then it's going to describe the dividing up of the land. But it's still all one huge vision from here to the end of the book. And, and the hard thing for us is trying to come up with what does this mean and what does it apply to? And that's pretty, that's, that's going to be somewhat challenging. But I think it applies to the idea of God being present with his people again. We'll talk a little bit more about details of that, but yes, Sarah. One thing that makes me think of is that I'm in the process of thinking about trying to buy a house. And I remember when people are building their house, they will often go on and on and on and on and on if they're like me about the details of the house. There's hardwood floor, and the ceilings are nine foot here, and you have this kind of windows, and they're this kind of And it's because they're so excited about what they're doing, and, and this is like their place, and it's exactly the way they want it. And so um, that probably would be a good... That is an excellent point. Now, I want you to think about this. <laughs> What is Ezekiel's personal relationship to a temple? He's a priest. He's a priest. You know, it all depends on what you're interested in. So this is his house. This is where he would serve. You know, a priest has great fascination with the details of God's house and the service in God's house. Chris could probably talk to us in great detail about transmissions and all sorts of things about them, and some things he probably finds really interesting, or really unique. I mean, he could probably tell us about some of the weird transmission situations that he's had. I don't know. Uh, and you know what? He'd go about two lines into that, and I'd be asleep. I don't know a thing about a transmission. I wouldn't know it if I saw it. You know? And I kind of have an idea of what it does, but not very well. I just know, you know have one, the car's not going to go, so uh, <laughs> you always hope your transmission keeps transmitting. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and for some of us right now, you know, talking about NCAA basketball is really entertaining. And, you know, I projected the field yesterday, and I, I did worse than usual. I missed two. I usually just miss one. So that was kind of bad. You know, I can tell you the... Uh, you know, seedings of a lot of the teams, and, you know, I can tell you what conferences they're in, and I can tell you in some cases about what their record was, and, you know, this, that, and the other. That is really interesting to me. But for some of you, if I started going into all that, you'd fall asleep. 
you know, it all depends on what you're interested in as to whether or not it's exciting or boring. And so Ezekiel would be fascinated by getting to go through this temple and seeing all the nooks and crannies and all the stuff, and then by knowing all about the service in the temple and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to go together to make the point God comes back to be with his people. And they have perfect fellowship and harmony again, but he's going to describe it in terms that, you know, might sound rather architectural for most of us. Alright, comments and questions further on this kind of overview and introduction to what we're going to be looking at. It has his spiritual fulfillment, obviously, and um, God returning to his people, and then, um, you know, all the messianic fulfillment. Do you think there's any physical fulfillment in the temple itself being rebuilt when the, the exiles come back? I don't think so. I wouldn't deny the perhaps slight typical fulfillment in God coming back to be with his people during that period perhaps. But I don't think there's much evidence that the details of this ever were carried out by the Jews when they returned from captivity. Certainly some of the description of the temple does not seem to fit that and some of the things he says later, particularly the, the division of the land. Well, he divides the land is nothing like, you know, anything we know that happened. And even, you know, he'll describe one of the coolest things <coughs> when he describes the little trickle of water that comes out of the temple. And I won't spoil that for you, but I don't think anything like that's ever happened physically on the earth. Uh, on the earth. And uh, so forth. So I take this all as just visionary. And, and that Ezekiel really sees it all, but it really symbolizes the idea of God being with his people. That's, that's the way I take it. I mean, there's certainly people who take this as this is the blueprint for the millennial temple. And we're supposed to literally rebuild this in the millennium or something. I just don't see that. <laughs> I think, you know, among other things, he's going to talk all about animal sacrifices in here. And I don't think we're ever going to go back, revert back to animal sacrifices after all that Hebrews says about their imperfection and weakness and so forth. So I think I think to look at this in some kind of a physical, literal way, either in the return or in some future literal temple is probably not the best way to understand it. This appears to be like the second the second time that God is saying, I'm with you, because the first time is, look, there's this God, they're coming, don't worry about them, whack. And now he's saying the same thing again in the temple. Here's the temple, here I am. We're cool. Yes, I agree. I agree. And it contrasts, remember the valley of dry bones, now we're up on a high mountain. This is the mountain peak of their history. Alright, anything else you want to say or ask about our introductory survey of 40 and following? I guess Ezekiel would have seen the original temple. Yeah, I wouldn't know why he wouldn't have. You know, I would assume he would. He was... uh, 30 years old, 5 years into his captivity, so he'd have been about 25 whenever he was taken into captivity. And he would not have Probably not, but probably not. Although, it depends on your passage. Some passages have him serving at 30, some at 25, and some at 20. That's kind of complicated, but probably not. Really? Is that true? Uh... Well, Moses was talking to him when they were standing at the Jordan ready to go in to the promised land. So it looks like Eliezer went into the promised land. Yeah. 
And he was a priest. And he was a priest. Before everything happened with the spies and the not getting to go to the land. So he would have been too old. To enter the land of Canaan. <laughs> you had a revelation in it. Yeah. Well, well, so you're saying why are we saying that? Because he was not over twenty. Joshua and Caleb weren't the only two that remained from that generation that went in. If Eleazar was there, if he was a priest, you're saying he was a spy. No, he wasn't a spy, but he was a priest when the spies went in to check out the land. So a priest had to be twenty, and those. He was a priest at that point. Yeah, because and everyone twenty and older was and Abu Abu died. That was in like Leviticus where they were supposed And Eleazar was a priest then, and, and then it's when they're getting ready. Yeah. We just know that he's running. No, twenty. Numbers thirty-one. Numbers. And it looks like he's going into the land. I mean, Moses is talking to him right before he goes up to die. And give him instructions to come and before Eleazar. Maybe it's because um, Nadab and Abihu died, and so Aaron's sons that were left were the younger ones, and they just took them anyway. But they were already priests even before Nadab and Abihu. The point is, did Eleazar go into the Promised Land, though he was over 20 years old when God said everyone over 20 was going to die? That's a good question, though. I have not thought about that. Possible, but I've slept since then. I don't have no recollection of talking about that. We still don't have a good answer. I don't really. That's a good question. I don't know a couple weeks. (laughs) Why? Because we'll have read through that through Joshua. All right. Well, that's probably a good stopping place for tonight then. And uh, I won't be here next week, so. Two weeks from today, we'll start working on chapter 40. And we'll probably go through some of this fairly quickly. Is that because we're not going to understand it? (laughs) Well, because I'm not going to give you architectural details of the temple. I'm not very good at that kind of stuff.